This is Arsiate uh, Kun, your host at Why Indigenous Words and Ideas. And in this episode, wanted to talk about Baby Yoda, or the child from The Mandalorian, as well as the Star Wars universe. In this episode, I wanted to do an indigenous analysis uh, from my perspective as a Winak, as a Mayan, but also from uh, some indigenous perspectives from Oceania, and in particular from the Tongan perspectives that I've become more familiar with over the years, and kind of broaden some of the conversation I've seen already happen within the U.S. and Canada um, in indigenous communities. So I wanted to talk about the child who has been come to be known as Baby Yoda through popular culture in the series The Mandalorian, but also kind of in more broad terms, the Star Wars universe, and think about finding ourselves as indigenous peoples within the dominant global entertainment system, but also just understanding the dominant global entertainment system from indigenous perspectives, because oftentimes uh, we've been left out, or, or maybe not even left out, but erased from our contributions uh, to ideas that uh, inform a lot of pop culture. And in the case of Star Wars, there's a lot of indigenous concepts in there. There's a lot of indigenous imagery and icons that are part of it, but have uh, kind of become erased through the fantasy creation of Star Wars, where for uh, for me, at least philosophically, some of that stuff is it's it's not a fantasy. This is how we see the world in some regards. But there's a mix of different things. And kind of before I get into the Star Wars, though, I wanted to just get you to think about what I mean by the dominant entertainment system. And so thinking about productions of, let's say, Hollywood or even out of the UK or in other parts of the world that dominate particular imagery and visibility. You know, how many King Arthur movies have you seen? How many have you heard of? I mean, I can think of maybe close to a dozen, and I, I've probably seen most of them, and I enjoyed them, but I'm like, how many are they going to make? I mean, and I'm not saying you can't remake stuff either, but how many are there going to be? And still, there's all these other stories that have been erased or have very little visibility. What's another one? Uh, Robin Hood. How many Robin Hoods are there? How many have you seen? I mean, I enjoy those films too. Like, I really, I like the Robin Hood story. And I've seen it. I've seen it remade so many times, and I'm like, cool. You know, like there's other people out there too. There's other stories out there too. Mary Queen of Scots. I mean, I'm really interested in that history also. But in this last decade, I feel like there's been heaps of movies been made from that time period and that topic as well. And and it goes on and on. Shakespeare and so forth. You know, and one of the things that I had to do growing up and kind of learning from just kind of how my dad would approach different kind of stories. And the way he would reconfigure and remake stories and the way he would talk to me and tell me stuff, I began to learn to see those dominant representations through an indigenous reconfiguration or lens so we could see ourselves in there or find ourselves in there. And so when it came to like King Arthur, for example, like I like the depictions of Merlin when it appears like Merlin's more of a medicine person. Um, or a spiritual guy, which to me, or a shaman, like that was how I began to understand Merlin, for example, rather than as a magician or a wizard, um, but as in, an indigenous scientist of what was left of, of the Britons, you know, 
as they're getting invaded by the Romans and then later the Anglo-Saxons. And so thinking about it from that perspective was kind of how I began to engage. And there was this really uh, great opinion piece uh, that came out recently that I think is really useful in articulating this process that um, I was very familiar with growing up. Um, and so I'm just going to read some sections from it, uh, some excerpts from it. This is by Simon Moya Smith on NBC News Think, and it's titled, The Mandalorian May Never Reveal Baby Yoda's True Origins, But Native Americans Already Know. Okay, so here we go. Quote, There's not a lot of native pop culture content, so we make it ourselves, or give something that exists in indigenous flavor. But in Indian country, Baby Yoda has stuck a particular chord. His adorableness has been the inspiration behind paintings, beaded patches, medallions, earrings, and t-shirts made by indigenous folks in the U.S. and Canada, all in homage to the little guy. So why, then, do natives relate to Baby Yoda so deeply? First, there's a thing we do as natives, which has come to be known as indigenization, which is when, inspired by art or pop culture, we give it an indigenous spin, something our communities can relate to, and that's what we've done with Baby Yoda. Indigenization is about representation. There isn't a lot of media made for the indigenous community, let alone positive media made respectfully about indigenous people, unless we make it ourselves. There's not a single mainstream TV sitcom about a native family. There's never been a cast member of Saturday Night Live who was native. Whether on Netflix, HBO, or Hulu, there's just not a lot of native content, so we make it ourselves, or give something indigenous flavor, as we have with Baby Yoda. And we see a little, or even a lot, of our people in Baby Yoda. Regardless of what tribe or nation Baby Yoda is, again, he's obviously Oglala, I can't state this more clearly, he is incontrovertibly native. Don't even bother trying to argue this point. And until natives are included in the modern American narrative and pop culture, beyond, lest we forget the fact that Carrie Fisher's framed two-bund hairstyle in Star Wars Episode Four: A New Hope was inspired by the Hopi and their squash blossom loops, outside of racist mascots and that tired banal cowboys and Indians motif, we will continue to claim our icons where we find them and produce our own content. So the next time you watch The Mandalorian, just remember, the show is a western and that kidnapped baby is indigenous. We know the narrative, we've seen it before. Plus, those green ears are really just two big, beautiful native braids. Once you see it, you can't unsee it. And if you can't, well, just use the force. Close quote. So again, this is coming from uh, Simon Moya Smith and uh, the opinion piece on NBC News Think. And I, I feel like how I came to understand these things too. And so myself, as we not growing up in the U.S., I oftentimes it was kind of mixed in how people would accept my identity as an indigenous person or not. And it really depended. And part of it was because I would be erased under this other big category of Latino or today Latinx um, or so-called Hispanic. And for me, like, it's a hard thing to get people to understand sometimes. Less so for me here in Aotearoa. Aotearoa has enough of an influence from Maori and whakapapa or genealogy that I haven't had that same issue. Like, because I know my whakapapa, my genealogy... And that doesn't mean I have a complete genealogy, but I, I know my ancestral origins and peoples. I haven't had any issues of, of 
being indigenous in Aotearoa or being recognized as part of the global indigenous community. But in the U.S., it's a very different uh, environment, different kind of dynamics there. And people be like, oh, you know, you're Latino or you're Hispanic. And I'm like, well, what does that even mean? You know, to be Hispanic means to be Spanish. And to be Lat- Latino or Latinx means that you have, is in a sense, you're identifying with who colonized you. You're identifying with the colonial geography of Latin-speaking countries, which is completely contradictory and arbitrary because you got Puerto Rico and Cuba who are included, for example, but then you skip over Jamaica, which is next door. You know, and so there's all these contradictions that exist with with framing it in that way. And for me, I'm like, would we, you know, consider native peoples from the U.S. or Canada as being, you know, French or Anglo because they speak French or English? I mean, I haven't seen that happen. But then for indigenous peoples that speak Spanish that come from so-called Latin America, they're identified as Latin or uh, Hispanic. So there's a contradiction there as well. And I think this is why I like to try to have global perspectives and discussions. And so for me, I I would have to combat that identity at different times in my life that would try to erase my indigenous identity as we knock. And I really closely identified with the Hollywood, you know, uh, native and not because that was coming from my peoples. You know, we come from the highlands and a tropical climate, but you know, in the in the Hollywood, you know, native was always, you know, uh, the stereotype of the plains native that seemed to always be in Dene or Navajo country, because that's where a lot of this stuff was being filmed too. And so you have this mishmash being happening in Hollywood, and it wasn't even from my own backgrounds, but I would see myself in that because I, that's how I I identified, um, and that was what was available, and so. I love the commentary that's coming from uh, Indian country, it, referring to indigenous peoples in the U.S. And, and Canada. But I also wanted to broaden that perspective as well, because there's other indigenous peoples who are also relating. And so I, I loved how um, in, uh, in Moya Smith's piece, you know, um, there's, there's an argument there that Baby Yoda's Oglala, and it's mentioned in there as well, like how different groups, uh, indigenous groups have claimed uh, Baby Yoda. So in this one, I wanted to make a claim uh, and make my uh, argument for why uh, the child in Mandaloria, in the Mandalorian, aka Baby Yoda, is Mayan. And so part of it's going to be a little bit heavy, just a heads up. And maybe you just kind of keep this in mind for future episodes as well. When Because I'm talking about indigenous issues, I'm often going to be dealing with colonization and heavy topics and issues as well. I try to do it in a mature manner, in a respectful manner, um, and in a mindful way, but just kind of heads up that 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 is going to be regularly part of the content if you haven't picked up on it already. And so for me, thinking about stuff beyond our control and also limited representation in uh, mediums that have a lot of visibility, for me, I'm like, what can be more Mayan at this time than Baby Yoda? Here you have a child that is literally in captivity and can't find a safe place to live. And unfortunately and tragically, this is a lived reality that is happening and has been happening for quite some time, but has garnered some visibility more recently in in the media, whether it's looking at unaccompanied minors from Central America, 
um, or the the Mayan children who have died in U.S. custody. Um, I was uh, privileged to be a part of a group of uh, Mayab scholars in diaspora who wrote an open letter to the to the United States, Mexican, and Guatemalan governments, in which we condemn the. Uh, the, the policies as well as the treatment of of these children and you know recognizing and saying the names of you know Jacqueline Maquin, Felipe Alonso, Juan Gutierrez, Wilmer Ramirez, Carlos Hernandez you know and sadly more and I, you know you, you'd hope that they'd be personal to people as human beings and identifying with the the need to protect children but then also personally because these were those names that I mentioned. These are all Mayan children that come from different uh, Mayan communities within Ishimuleo and Guatemala. I mean, I could have been one of those kids. I think about my kids and I'm like, they could have been one of those kids. And that's something that, you know, really uh, impacts me. And so, you know, and I'm all the way over here in Aotearoa and I sometimes struggle with the the lack of direct contributions I can make in in this particular struggle where uh, these aren't just immigrants, these are refugees and these are children and these are uh, indigenous peoples. And I think about, you know, that stuff as I'm watching, you know, The Mandalorian and I'm thinking about how here you have this child who can't find a safe place to be and is, you know, the, the remnants of the empire are trying to to kill baby Yoda. And I'm like, this is actually what's happening to our people. And this is, you know, I always try to f- understand what's going on, even though I don't agree with it. And I'm like, man, to be a living indigenous person is a threat to the empire, the galactic empire. We're familiar with who that is. We know who the stormtroopers are. You know, uh, Guatemala is an oppressive nation state, but it also was... Uh, you know, dis- dismantled in many ways and destabilized by the Galactic Empire. And the U.S. CIA overthrew uh, a Democratic elected uh, president back in the 50s and then supported and upheld Iron Fist far-right dictators who committed genocidal acts and destroyed complete villages and massacred thousands of people throughout this process. And so many that were unarmed, innocent civilians. You know, understanding that history and knowing that history and knowing that, you know, to identify the way that we do is a political identity. Indigenous is a political identity because we are a reminder not only of the past atrocities of colonization, but also the how... That colonization was not just a historical event, but is a living system. And we are a constant reminder of that in our identities. And some people don't identify as indigenous and still are treated as such when they are have indigenous ancestry. And so this is a complex thing. It's a complicated spectrum. And so, you know, when I see the Mandalorian, I'm thinking, man, like Mando is, is those who are out there fighting to protect the children. And, you know, I think about fighting to get, you know, legal representation for people 
who who fight to uh, get translate translators available in Mayan languages and in other indigenous languages, um, which is often overlooked in the in in that system, and also you know trying to reframe as well that this is a refugee situation. This is about asylum. This is a very different thing from immigration. And on top of that, that this is connected to the actions of the past and the present. And so there is a living accountability and responsibility. And there is no uh, coincidence in where people flee to in, in, in today's world. If Whether you're fleeing to the United States or to Australia or Aotearoa, New Zealand or somewhere in the UK, most oftentimes those countries have a relationship to those peoples fleeing towards them and those countries have often been propped up economically by the places where those people are coming from as well. And so there is a colonial and imperial relationship to that. And so that's kind of one of the things that I think about as I'm watching uh, The Mandalorian and thinking about it. And, and so for me, just in that sense, politically, Baby Yoda is Mayan as well as Oglala and all these other indigenous peoples. Um, and on top of that, to give you a little bit of a relief for a moment, Yoda is green. And that is the color of the most precious stone for Mayan people. Yamanim, or jade, greenstone. Paunamu, as they say here in Aotearoa, in Maori. Yamanik is another word, which means precious stone. And the green represents life and energy, among other things. That's the force, okay? Yoda and baby Yoda are known to be strong with the force, okay? They also operate in a different way of time, which is why baby Yoda is 50 years old and still a baby. And who knows how many centuries old Yoda was, okay? And so this is also thinking about previous episodes that I've talked about in Mayan concept of time. So for me, Yoda is super Mayan, okay? And the last point I'm going to make, just to kind of try to nail it in for you so you see the 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 uh, the Maya connection here. And now this isn't one that I say too uh happily because uh it's it's not one that I I usually boast of, but Mayan people are short. I'm not the tallest person in the world and so is Yoda. So on that one, I'll end it, you know, boom. You know, Yoda is Mayan. <laughs> Um, but also to broaden it further, let's let's get into the Star Wars universe a little bit. Uh, try to lighten it here a little bit and, and balance it out. Because uh, I know that some of that stuff is heavy. It's a real thing. It's a living thing. Um, and we shouldn't, you know, shy away from that stuff. We should face it. But at the same time, also try to maintain a balance. Just even for my own sanity, man. Because some of this stuff is just... I live it, you know, I live and breathe that stuff and then inherit a lot of that. And it's taken me a long time to heal from the generational traumas, from historical traumas, and, and still, you know, not fully. I don't like to uh, dwell only on that. I think it's important not to ignore it, but also I like to balance things out and show some other connections. And so one of the other things I wanted to share is there's also an indigenous oceanic connection to the Star Wars universe kind of more broadly. And there was an interesting article that came out on the Coconet um, called Star Wars and the Fiji Connection. And this was written by Sean Malin. And he talks about the Tusken Raiders of Tatooine and the Fijian Totokia War Club, 
which was one that was used by chiefs and warriors of reputation. And it is this long club that has this spiky ball at the top. And out of that spiky ball, there's a longer spike that comes out of that. And the spiky ball is, um, I believe, connected to the pandanus fruit and it has that appearance. And then it has that spike that comes out of it, this long spike. So this is a quote from uh, Sean Malin's article. And uh, he says, quote, the weight to the head of the club was concentrated in the point of the beak of the weapon, or kenditoki, toki to peck, e toki, a bird's beak. The totokia delivered a deadly blow in an abrupt but vicious stab, not requiring the wide-swinging arc demanded by the other war clubs. It was a club that could be used in open warfare or to finish off or execute warriors on the battlefield. Close quote. And so even the icons and imagery throughout are drawing from a lot of different indigenous cultures throughout the world, a lot of ancient cultures and concepts and ideas. I think this is one of the reasons why so many people who do like Star Wars connect with it, because it has such a mix of a lot of different cosmologies from around the world and histories and ideas. And, when, and especially when you start dealing with old stories, the further back you go, the more similar they get across the globe. I'm not saying they're the same, but they become awfully similar in in ideas, although with very important, unique expressions um, to place. And so that's another point there. The the Tuscan Raider uh, version is uh, appears very much like the Fijian, and it has kind of a slight adaptation to the handle as well. If you want to go check that out, take a look. So there is that connection also. Uh, but the other one I wanted to talk about was philosophically with um, kind of looking at it from a Tongan perspective as well. And this came up, oh, I guess back in 2017 during the Rugby League World Cup when the Tonga team, Matamata Tonga, also known as the Kautoa, were playing and doing quite well. And I remember there was this meme that showed up and I really liked it and so I shared it and it said, may the horse be with you. Now, this was a play on words because Tongans have a unique relationship to the horse. I'll save that for another time, but for those of you familiar with the Tongan community, you know what I'm talking about. But it was a play on the words with force and the saying that's from the Star Wars universe. And so when I shared that, um, Dr. Devita Kaili, who is a Tongan anthropologist, made a comment about how uh, he liked it, but he also felt that you know there's a point of conversation there in thinking about the concept of manna in, in Tongan and the force in the Star Wars universe and thinking about that philosophically. One of the things that, um, you know, you, you know, most people watch these Star Wars and if you have some familiarity or awareness, then, you know, you'll see the South Asian influences, you'll see the East Asian influences, you'll see the Buddhism um, and you'll see maybe some of the ancient icons from around the world. But there is also these other indigenous concepts that align, that can interpret Star Wars as well. And manna in Tongan, in it's, uh, the concept of manna exists in Fiji and Samoa, here in Aotearoa and Hawaii and elsewhere. And other places have very similar concepts as well, even if they don't call it manna. The way I've come to understand manna is that it is this uh, potency, honor, prestige, authority. And I like to think about it as energy or a collective energy or a harnessed energy because the way 
I understand manna is it is the harnessing or the capture or alignment or the effective practical manifestation or materialization of the life force and energy that exists all around, which in Tongan is ma'ui for life. Uh, in Maori, it's modi, life force or energy. And so that's kind of how I've understood mana is is being able to align with those things. And that could be, you know, used and if you if you're a craftsperson and you make sea vessels or um, if you're the head, the head of agriculture in, in ancient times or even in contemporary times and you're able to bring the, the most bounty out of the land because you know the calendar cycles, you know the seasons, you know the earth, you know the soil, you have the knowledge of the life force and are able to harness it and practically manifest and materialize knowledge in, in order to produce and generate more um, out of this energy that is manna and of course this was also going to include warriors you know those who had amazing skill sets and were reputable uh, warriors in ancient times or, or contemporary interpretations of that and athletes or, or other things you know that's a lot of manna as well and so there's the other component of manna which is tapu which is the i've talked about a little bit in in past episodes which is the protection so Something is tapu, set apart, restricted, sacred, sanctified, because it has manna, because it has energy, or because it has a concentration of harnessed energy, it becomes tapu, right? So all of us have manna as human beings that are alive and give off energy, and we all have tapu in, in regards to that, but we also maybe have layers depending on our skill sets or experience or our abilities or the knowledge that we materialize. That's another philosophical way of taking Tongan philosophy to interpret the Star Wars universe and understand and see some of those connections also. Now, this exists with many other groups of people also. And, you know, I won't go into it too much in this episode, maybe at some future time. But interestingly, you know, in in uh, the Maya calendar, we have this totem or this uh, month sign or day sign, um, if you will, called Tzi. I'm saying that slowly there because it has a glottal stop, T-Z, glottal stop, I, or Tzi. And it is, uh, represents authority. It's, the, it's a, a day of authority, but it also has to do with, the way I understand it, is the cosmic authority. Right, so the energy, cosmic energy, the embodiment or the capture of cosmic energy, or thinking about the old Ahau, um, which were the queens or kings, if you will, paramount chiefesses or chiefs who held time and space within uh, Maya society anciently and still living in adapted forms today is when you hold time and space. That means you're holding energy right and interestingly tzi is very similar sounding uh, uh, to qi in the chinese philosophy of the vital force and you know that kind of flows through all living entities and again life force or energy flow and so that's in you know I'll save that conversation for another time and maybe making some of those comparisons across asia and the americas and oceania but there's Definitely uh, common or related concepts and ideas there. 
And so to to kind of close it up, I wanted to share something that I I wrote up several years ago now, but it's after Rogue One came out and it reminded I was reminded of this because my kids were playing um Oh, what's that game? It's on PlayStation with Star Wars Battlefront Two, and they were and they kept repeating the level of of the Yavin Four base, which is inspired by the Maya pyramids of Tikal in Ishimuleu in the lowland uh, tropical um, forest of or jungle in in uh, Guatemala or Ishimuleu, and they kept playing it because they're like, hey, we're protecting our ancestors. And their homeland and our ancestral homeland, and they kept repeating and playing as rebels. And I was like, "Oh wow, this is interesting." They're doing this stuff too, with with different mediums. Where I was doing with movies, they're doing it now with a video game, um, and working with the reality of of what is available, and then with what we know, and trying to keep our ways alive through our interaction with what is available. And so this is a, a post that I put up in the past. And it was after Rogue One came out, which to me still, I think, is my favorite of the Star Wars um, films. This is what I wrote down, so I'll, I'll, I'll close it up with this. I am one with the Force. The Force is with me. I was watching Rogue One with my boys, reminding me of watching New Hope with my dad when I was a kid. Interestingly, the Yavin 4 rebel base was in both movies as well. Although I detected several world and historical events and philosophies in the film, the most obvious visible use to me is of our ancestral pyramids. I remember always knowing that. It was the first mainstream media representation I knew about us, without us, directly. In A New Hope, they filmed on-site at the National Park in Ishimuleo, Guatemala, of Tikal, Tikal, Yashmutul. In Rogue One, they recreated and adapted the design of what looks to me like the iconic temples 1, 2, 3, and 4, especially Temple 1, also known as El Gran Jaguar, or the Great Jaguar, a funerary tomb raised a bit over 1,200 years ago, although this ceremonial site extends back much further. Another thing I was thinking of is that when the New Hope scene was filmed in Guatemala, or Ishimuleu in the 70s, it was during a bloody civil war and on the brink of arguably the most violent period where scorched earth tactics and acts of genocide took place in the early to mid 80s. You could scarcely imagine any public ceremony or rituals taking place in these ancestral sites or anywhere for that matter, as much had still remained underground since the conflicts of contact centuries earlier. Now, when Rogue One has come out, it's in the midst of a growing Mayan Renaissance and the continued negotiations of a slippery post-peace accord reality and the aftermaths and prejudices that still remain against indigenous people. But despite the many challenges, inequalities, and outright injustices that still prevail, today you'll find more acceptance and protection of Mayan spirituality and public ceremony, which once again are done at these sacred ancestral sites. They were never quote, lost cities to locals, and contrary to dominant narratives of civilization collapse, many ceremonial sites were allowed time to regenerate after several generations of occupation in the area, such as uh, five cycles of a calendar round, or 13 katuns, approximately 256 to 260 years in the Gregorian sense, at, in a site before moving to another settlement, so there was a circular rotation of city sites, of approximately 260 year cycles, which was misinterpreted through modern lenses. 
Having a cyclical worldview and with stories of the past, wooden people who preceded us and, and were said to have not have respected the ecological balance, abusing the trees and animals and not capable of worshiping the creator, it is a constant reminder of those limits. And we as the corn people, the new consciousness that emerged afterwards came after, and it is ingrained within our cosmovision, our cosmic worldview. There are accounts of thriving cities at contact and more recent Western evidence confirming conscious abandonment of sites related to ecological stresses or relationships. The real collapse was from newly introduced disease and colonization. Despite that, we remain, many of us for that matter, and like our ancient sites, we stand. Some still call them ruins, but how can they be? They still stand, do they not? They are the great Mayan remains, and intact, our ancestors built them. Some are tombs, but others are built upon other temples and pyramids, which are built on top of mounds. Each dynasty, paramount chief, queen, or king of the independent city-states is built upon the previous one and the previous generation. The knowledge of who you are and who holds you up through your genealogy is the power one possesses as a leader, a chief, a jefe. Star Wars always had familiar themes and tones before, quote, modern Western science figured out our atomic origins from stardust. Our creation stories began in the cosmos and traces genealogy back to the stars and stories of cosmic star people's roles in our creation. One important example is of the first grandmother, Ishmukane, who grinded corn to make the first people that could worship and possess hearts and souls coming out of the cosmos with Kukumats, the plumed serpent. One interpretation is that these are our ancestors who had obtained the knowledge of the stars and have since been passing it down, holding us up. And so today, like our ancient sites, ancestors, and living cultures, we stand against the continued opposition that has yet to conquer us or our ways in 500 years. So like the Rebel Alliance in Star Wars, we too fight the empires of today, intellectually and spiritually. This is... Uh, just to share that with you and hopefully I've, I've made the case of the many indigenous connections and ways of understanding pop culture and um, Star Wars and how Baby Yoda has a strong Mayan connection and Yoda as well and so I'll, I'll leave this episode with you um, in a traditional Mayan Jedi saying of may the force be with you till the next time <laughs>